I'm Jeff Cook. And I'm TJ Wilson. And this is Around the Circle. I'm walking slowly. I'm taking my time. All I could talk in is starting to rhyme. I'm letting go lonely, letting go of strife. I just can't get enough of this beautiful life. The Enneagram. It's a map of the human personality. It's a tool for navigating relationships, creates language for what motivates us, and helps us look at the way we look at everything else. Most importantly, the Enneagram is a mirror because sometimes you need help seeing yourself. My name is Jeff Cook. I'm a philosopher, writer, and movie aficionado in Greeley, Colorado, and with me is TJ Wilson, businessman, lover of theology, and Enneagram ninja. Hello. My man. Hey. We are privileged again to share the microphone with the Suzanne Stabile. What a great day. Suzanne is not only a master Enneagram theorist and teacher, she is apparently married to the greatest human being presently living. True story. <laughs> That's a true story. I imagine that is quite helpful during this time <laughs> of isolation. Yes, he wishes he was married to the best human being. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, before we started, we were talking about um, lessons learned during this time. And I've heard you, Suzanne, tease this in other podcasts, but I have not heard the full robust, here's what I have learned over the last six months. And uh, is there anything, is there, is there any in insight that you can uh, give to those of us who are struggling? Uh, yeah, two or three things. The first thing sounds self-serving, uh, unfortunately. But, but I, I wish it didn't, um, and that is that uh, if you know the Enneagram, it's much easier to be quarantined. Uh, it's much easier to be patient. It's much easier to respect difference. It's much easier to get along day in and day out with people that you uh, maybe share life with but not lunch. Mm. <laughs> it... Um, it's just extraordinarily helpful. Our adult children and their spouses and Joe and I have talked a good bit about the fact that um, th this would have been very difficult for people who are as active as we all are. We all happen to have jobs that we really love, and it would have been really difficult for the variety of numbers that we have and the combinations that we have in our family if we didn't understand our differences. So that's one thing. The second thing that has helped, honestly, and again, I, I, I hope this isn't patronizing, but it, it helps to be old, or older. So um, Joe's 73, and I'm gonna be 70 next month, and we have had a wonderful, wonderful life. Uh, before we were together and for the last 35 years of being together. But we've also had some really hard times and they all came to an end. We've served a really difficult church and that time came to an end. Mm. And uh, we've said about that church, looking back, that if we had to serve that church again to learn the lessons we learned there, yeah. we would sign up. Come hmm. on. And so I think uh, if you're patient, 
then you can receive what this time has to offer. On the other end of that, though, I think what we're not prepared for, uh, whether or not we're during a pandemic or not, we collectively and individually are not prepared for so much divisive conversation. Um, you know, there's not a thread to grab yep. that, mm. that you can follow. You know how the little bitties, churches we've served that had a daycare, little bitties, when they take them outside to walk, they all hold on to the same little rope, sure. you know? Mm-hmm. Sure. And we don't have that. We're holding on to different ropes, and we don't have that. And I, I think we were not at all prepared for the dysfunction of being so polarized. Yep. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about that in a minute. That's a great word. Um, TJ, I haven't asked you that same question. Do you have thoughts on that and or any insights that you've gotten from the COVID? I don't know that I have any insights that I can state better than what Suzanne just said. Um, but I, I, I also had a, had a baby right at the start of all of this. And, um, and I think this, these two things happened at the same time, but, but one big lesson that I've learned in this is what things are important and what things aren't. Mm. Um, and I, I feel like, through the lens of the Enneagram that has also, that has informed a lot of what things I've paid attention to in this time and what things I've decided not to pay attention to. Um, Like I've basically stopped following the news a few weeks ago and it has changed everything for me. (laughs) (laughs) And like, there's, there's nothing I can do about how terrible things are in the world and, and not focusing on getting the information has actually really helped my psyche. Um, and yeah, just learning, learning what to, to pay attention to has been necessary. And uh, it's still definitely an ongoing battle, but, but that's, that's one lesson that I'm, for sure taking away from this. One thing I'm learning from Joe during all of this, because uh, as head of congregational care, he's responsible for what we call at our church restoration ministry, which has to do with domestic violence Mm. and domestic abuse. And I I think we would be remiss in not mentioning that uh, there are serious, grave problems. Yeah happening in lots of homes yeah. uh, where people don't have adequate tools for dealing with a time like this. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I, I, uh, there's a lot going on, and I don't think we're going to have any idea how much um, yeah. until, you know, who knows, three years from now, maybe. Right. Yeah, we have a, our other, the other pastor on our team uh, does similar work and just reports the um, the the amount of alcohol abuse and drug yeah. abuse and that that then spills over into into physical abuses yeah. has skyrocketed yeah. so so sad my i and i'd be curious what you all think on this the thing for me has been that i've been really aware of where i get my value as a body type the the idea that i am what i do is all over my struggles mm. that doesn't that it helps me in name my struggles i got then 
you know, do the work of of getting my heart, mind, soul around uh, overcoming those. But just that element of the Enneagram alone has been really helpful. And I'm like, the reason that I'm depressed, down, or just struggling on days that that's the case is generally because I'm getting my value from what I accomplish. Hmm. Yeah, and you can't change what you can't name. There so being able to name it's very helpful. I imagine, so TJ and I are both body types. In terms of, I imagine that would be similar for you, uh, Suzanne, in terms of the, the, the lack of relational connection right now. Mm-hmm. It's been, uh, it's actually been problematic for me. I, it's where I get my energy. Mm. It's uh, where I get my sense of myself. Yeah. And um, actually what I've learned is it's where most of my creativity comes from. Mm. And so writing during this time has been very challenging, very, sure. very challenging. And I, um, I, I really miss being in different parts of the country with different groups of people, mm-hmm. having a varied conversation around the Enneagram or life or whatever. But I really miss that. Yeah. The creativity set, that's a great word. I imagine the reactive type, yep. you and I are both reactive types, of floating something, feeling the response from others, and then be able to get our minds, hearts around, oh, yeah. there's the, the road through Yeah. Um, in terms of that topic. I likewise you, feel that. Yeah, it's hard. Like, you remember uh, when we talked the first time? We were in some church somewhere, I think, church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I am working on a new thing, and I told the two of you about it, and yep. for some stupid reason trusted you, and I was <laughs> right. I was absolutely right because I can trust the two of you. And I was so excited about it, and you got excited about it. That then sparks the creativity that I have around that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. And it, it's just difficult. That's all. It's hard. Yep. Well, we have a ton to get to today. Suzanne, you have taken the helm as series editor of what looks to be an exceptional nine-book series called the Enneagram Daily Reflections. It'll be published by the InterVarsity Press. Um, These are going to be nine books written by nine different authors, each with 40 reflections on their own types. Have you gotten a chance to see all these books? or I've I've seen all but uh, two, and I've seen excerpts from those two. Boom. As a whole... Uh, 40,000 feet up. As a whole, what have you gained from this experience? Well, I think, uh, let me see what I've gained. Let let me say what I've learned. I've learned that uh, vulnerability looks very different in each of the nine numbers. Hmm. And um, Cindy Bunch and IVP did a really good job of pulling together a group of people that uh, represent several ethnicities and ages, and uh, they did a real good thing. They got a a male two and a female eight, and um, vulnerability in each of these books in this series is 
it's where the gold is. Yeah. And um, I think it's going to feel like a safe place for readers to be vulnerable, at least with themselves. I don't think they're going to feel alone because they have this reading in front of them that's shared from somebody else's life experience. And I think for, for folks for whom they take vulnerability too lightly, which is usually twos and fours and sometimes sixes, I, I think they will take it more seriously. And I think numbers that just refuse to be vulnerable will see the value in vulnerability. I, hmm. I'm really, I'm very impressed and uh, honored to be part of it. That's wonderful. The idea then of, there's a couple of Enneagram writers who are ones who bring something different to my experience of hearing about ones right. than other Enneagram writers who are fantastic. There is both the value of hearing from your own type about your type and then hearing from somebody outside your type about your type. Do, do you have that experience? Are there any twos who you really learn from and have had that experience well, you know, there aren't very many people in the heart triad who write about the Enneagram. Ah. Hmm. See, mostly when I started uh, teaching the Enneagram, yeah. there wasn't a two for me to read. Because hmm. uh, they're out there interacting with people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, uh, that seems to me strange because it seems like for somebody who would really get into the Enneagram, as a two, I would imagine it's one of those places where you're like, this is so valuable to me. I can, I can certainly help the people around me with, with uh, this way of seeing themselves. Yeah, but if you look at the mid-70s to the mid-80s, yeah. uh, most published authors were men. Most mm -hmm. nonfiction published authors were men. Ah. And most people who were exposed to the Enneagram were men. Mm -hmm. So oh, That's interesting. See? So Richard yeah. Rohr's story is that... He learned it from his Jesuit spiritual director who went to an event with other spiritual directors who learned it from Claudio Naranjo, right? And then the Catholic Church had it, and priests were using it in their communities, not diocesan priests as much, but ordered priests were. And then nuns got it but didn't publish. So there's a, there was a lack Mm -hmm. of uh, feeling types writing about the Enneagram. And, you know, I, I just gave myself a break. Like, I, 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 sometimes it sounds so unprofessional. But, you know, there's a lot of good stuff about the symbol and the math and all that, and I don't care. Right. Right. And so I gave myself a break and decided I wasn't going to know a little bit about it and teach it poorly I was just going to send people who want to hear about that to somebody who taught it better than me. I have not thought about that. The discovery element. There's the discovery element of the Enneagram itself. Yeah. Assuming that the Enneagram is part of the fabric of reality and human personality, when each of the types come to the topic itself and they talk about the Enneagram, they will uncover different beauties and truths based on, on, their, on their glasses. Exactly. So, you know, um, y'all have been to a, an LTM event. Uh, you know, we don't hand out an evaluation. Hmm. But we used to. We used to. And literally, I could just divide all of them in nine different stacks that represented... <laughs> 
<laughs> the nine different numbers. And yeah. it was very clear that we were never going to make all of them happy. Right. Right? So I said, we're not going to do this anymore. Smart. We just, it, we're not going to do it. Yeah. And I can tell often, you know, like Anagram 5s want to know about the history of the Anagram. And ones want to know exactly where it came from and how I know that. And I, I, like, I just don't play, right? I just say, and, and this is where it comes back to all of the ways that I use my life question. What is mine to do? Not that. That's not yeah. mine to do. Mm-hmm. So when I started writing uh, The Path Between Us, that's mine to do. Right, yeah. Relationships is mine to do. Right. Right? Uncovering what's under the veneer of your Enneagram personality type is what's mine to do. Hmm. Yeah. And I feel great about that. So, you know, uh, Richard Rohr and I were in a conversation, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, and he said, you know, there's a chance you tell too many stories. Things are a little too personal. (laughs) And I said, well, you know, there's a chance that you don't tell enough and that things aren't quite personal enough. And we agreed that together we were fine. That's fantastic. Uh, Jeff and I have had a very similar conversation. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We end each of our podcasts with a quote from Rob Bell that is something to the extent of who you aren't isn't interesting. Yeah. And pushing into your superpower, pushing into what you are is, is where yeah. the that's where the gold is. Um, building on that ways of seeing, you begin your excellent essay that launches these books. And I do wanna I'm not I'm not marking that to 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 boost your your, your self esteem. This is your essay to start this is really good. Um, but you begin the, the Enneagram is about nine ways of seeing. Belonging is complicated. We all want it, but few of us really understand it. The Enneagram identifies with more accuracy than any other wisdom tool I know why we can achieve belonging more easily with some people than others. And it teaches us to find our place in situations and groups without having to displace someone else. And then you do a little tag. I'm actually convinced that it's the answer to world peace, but some people have suggested I could be exaggerating just a bit. And TJ is going to tell you why this you are spot on and not exaggerating at all. <laughs> well, I mean, like so much about conflict in the world is has to do with people not knowing how to interact with each other. They don't know themselves, and they don't know how to be themselves to another person, and they don't know how to interact with that other person. They're expecting everyone to see things the way that they do. Like, we're all expecting that everyone else sees the world that we, the way that we do. Mm-hmm. And it's just not true. There are nine ways of seeing. This is a beautiful way to say this. And if we all were to take the time, if everyone in the world were to take the time to learn just that simple truth and that the person across the table might not see the world the same way that we do, we all might get along a little bit better. Do you have anything to add on that, Susie? Uh, well, I think it would change conversation permanently. Mm-hmm. I think it would permanently, over time, I think it would permanently alter what we talk about and how we talk with one another because people would quit trying to win. Yeah, yeah. You know, everything is about... 
it's so interesting to me. TJ, I, I know you've given up watching the news, but but I feel sure you'll remember it from three weeks ago. The new thing uh, from reporters and, and people in Washington, perhaps, when they start talking, is they start like this. Look. That's how they start it. Huh. Look. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Here's the Look. Deal. This is what happened. Look, y'all, TJ, you need to go back and watch for 24 hours okay. and just count. They all, all say, right. look. Sure. Right? And I am thinking, look at how you see. Mm-hmm. Is that what I'm supposed to look at? What, yeah. what am I looking at? You don't yeah. have a chart. You don't have a thing. What am I looking at? And I think the, the thing that we, we who don't understand that there are nine ways of seeing are constantly saying to one another is, look. Mm-hmm. With the, the belief that if you just look, you would see what I see. Right. And that's where things fall apart. Right, yeah. Yep. It seems to me, this is again something that we were kind of talking about off, off mic beforehand, but we have moved from the modern period in which facts are are accessible to everybody and there are no filters. We all come to the same world through the same lenses. And in the last 50, 100 years, our culture has discovered that's not actually how reality works. We each have a subjective point of view and that filter colors how we see the world. And we need to know that in order to it, we're we are we are going to kill each other if we don't understand that other people see things differently than we do, and we need to bridge that gap. We are killing each other, right? Not we're gonna. Yeah, we are doing that. Yep. And we are destroying the spirit in children, mm. and we are negating the creativity in adolescence, and we are underestimating the ideas in young adults Hmm. because they aren't looking at what we're looking at. The loss of not bringing together all nine ways of seeing is unending. Yep. One of the things that I think is truly valuable in your work may not be seen immediately, but I see it now in a lot of famous people who have begun talking about your work in a different way than they were talking about their work 10 years ago. So there's some famous podcasters, um, radio personalities who have begun to implement the Enneagram in their stuff. And they used to come forth and just say, this is how it is and be very direct and, and you need to get on the same page. And I've heard them interview Enneagram folks and all of a sudden there's a shift and all of a sudden they begin to be self-conscious about how they've been talking about the topic that they're the expert in. And specifically for those who are inclined like myself to really want to be right about our topics, um, there is something about all of a sudden realizing this is why I fight with my wife or this is why I don't get along with my kids. And once you see that you are seeing the world from a certain point of view, that 
is a Pandora's box that opens and actually might be quite healthy because that needs to be a, then applied to race and that needs to be applied to the other people across the aisle in your political sphere. That needs to be applied to other people of other religious traditions. And it seems to me one of the things that Enneagram really does is it opens Pandora's box in your house Yep. And you already love the person next to you in bed. You already love the person down the hall. And you realize, oh, we are so different. And I'm seeing the world through the lens of an eight, through the lens of a one, through the lens of a three. But all of a sudden, that doesn't stop. I see the world through, you know, a white guy who is raised in Colorado. I see the world as, you know, as, as someone who adopted Christianity when I was in high school. I see the world as someone who has taken this particular view of, you know, of, of, uh, you know, how the federal government should work. But they see it differently, and I can still love them even though they see the world differently. Mm -hmm. And I was hoping you could comment on that. Well, it doesn't have to be dualistic. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it, it, it's it's uh, so... Um, Richard Rohr is so, you know, he's my guy, but... Um, He's so good about sharing his journey from headspace. So if you start reading with Everything Belongs and then you read The Naked Now and then you read Falling Upward and then you read uh, Immortal Diamond and then you read, you know, I, like through that whole series, he is a one who is moving from duality to non-duality and he's yeah. moving from either or to both and. Yep. And... Both and is very helpful language. My editor and friend and literary agent, Cheryl Fullerton, is uh, always saying to me, two things can be true. And I think that if, if we had been taught to hold more, you, you know, we've been taught to get down to the bottom line. Well, what's the bottom line? Well, there's more than one bottom line. Yeah. And the bottom line for me is not the bottom line for you. Yep, right. And you can't have a you can't have a team meeting anywhere and have a speaker who interests everybody. Right. Yep. Right? It's like I don't care what this woman is talking about. Yep. And so you have to be grace-filled enough to look around the room and watch the people who are engaged and choose to be present to their engagement and then maybe a little bit will fall on you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we got so spoiled about everything should interest me and everything should be what I want and people are dumb who don't see like I see. And, and worse, people are wrong who don't see like yep. I see. And... Oh, this is tricky. Take this out if you want to. I, I think what's happened is that my parents were born in 1903 and 1908. And the reason their generation chose not to talk about politics was because they were not into trying to convince other people to, to do what they do. They thought you, you get to have room to vote however you want to. Hmm. And I get to have room to vote in whatever way I want to. Mm -hmm. And that's m my business. Mm -hmm. How I vote is my business. Now we're in a place where I read that 
you know, when my children got married, the number one question for me was, does this person love you and are they going to love you well for a very long time? And my second question was, do they understand that we're a family and that they're becoming part of this thing that we already have? Hmm. And I read in this, wherever it came from, that the number one important question for parents now when their children get engaged is what political party is their <laughs> fiancé. Hmm. Good grief. Yeah. Like, that makes me crazy. Seems silly. Yeah, well, it seems uh, it seems very myopic. Mm-hmm. The as an ethicist, the uh, the inability of American culture to be able to talk about values in constructive, healthy ways yeah. is befuddling to me. Yeah. How virtue works, um, uh, what what the target is. We, you were kind of saying this: the target of human life. We can dialogue about that in worthy ways with people who share different targets. But if it's a screaming match, you have, you've lost already. Yeah. And, this is, yeah. and, and there are billionaires who are profiting off you thinking, screaming at people across the divide is the best possible way for our, you know, our people to move forward. And there's always gonna be a divide. There's mm-hmm. always gonna yeah. be a divide. Mm-hmm. And the, the other thing that I think is um, really important is that we, we, all, we all have something to learn from people who see differently than we are. So if we went into a conversation as listeners instead of defenders, you know, it's like, are you listening to me or did you already decide what you were going to say before? Yes. And you're just waiting for the opening to say it. Mm. And the inability that we have to make room for one another is... um, When I was 13, I think, I uh, said to my mother... I don't see how you can be friends with her. She's a gossip. She just gossips all the time. And she even gossiped about me this week. And I, she's not a friend. I don't see how you can be friends with her. My mother said, sit down. <laughs> <laughs> and I did. And here's what she said. Look. There are 5,000 people here in this town, in this whole town. We yeah. have 5,000 people, she mm-hmm. said. She was sure saying, look. <laughs> there are 5,000 people in this town. And if I get mad at every one of them every time they do something I don't agree with, yep. I'm going to be very lonely in my old age. Mm. And on. my mom lived to be 92. <laughs> and everybody in that town loved her because she made room for everybody. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The, and I want to quote you again on this, but the idea, if we acknowledge there's always going to be a divide... We're never yeah. going to be on the same page. That's right. baked into the cake. And so if there's always going to be a divide, we can choose to do conversation in a way that always alienates us from one another. Mm-hmm. Or we can cho- choose to do conversation in constructive, meaningful, I'm loving you and understanding that you see the world differently than me ways. You write this, if our lives are to have meaning beyond ourselves, what a great target, by the way, If our lives are to have meaning beyond ourselves, we will have to develop the capacity to understand, value, and respect people who see the world differently than we do. We'll have to learn to name our own gifts. So it's not a diminishment of yourself. We have to learn to name our own gifts and identify our weaknesses, and the Enneagram reveals both at the same time. 
Yeah, that's pretty good. That's it. <laughs> Who wrote that? That was. <laughs> so here, here's the last thing I'll say about this this whole thing. Probably it depends on what you say next, I suppose. But <laughs> I, I do think this. Um, you know, I, I I talk about belonging. I, everybody wants to belong. Everybody wants to. But here's the thing. You have to understand that there don't have to be outsiders in order for you to be an insider. Oh, come on. And that's where the church is killing herself. Hmm. Well, and it, I mean, it's not just Christians. I mean, that the, the pockets, the bubbles where yes. we find identity. And we, we are valuable because we share these other people and we all believe the same thing. Yep. Anyway, yep. go ahead. Sorry. Well, I'm just, uh, you know, you can be an insider without there being outsiders. Yep. And people don't believe that. Intuitively, we don't believe that. Right. Intuitively, if somebody can't get in the group, then there's no value in being in the group. Yeah. And that's just upside down. Yep. Unhealthy place to find your value. Um, any final thoughts on that, TJ, and then we'll transition? Well, I... Uh, one thing that I am struck by that, that has been said before, but I don't think it's been said by us in this conversation is that um, like thinking about this, the, the other side, one huge value that I receive from the Enneagram is also like the compassion for someone else's way of thinking mm-hmm. because it helps me remember, like, as we keep saying, every, someone else sees the world in a different way. It doesn't mean they're a bad person. Yep. And it, it, it also, it, it doesn't mean they're wrong. Right. It, it forces me to recognize that, that they see it differently than I do, and they might have a different sense of value than what I am looking for. That doesn't mean it's bad. It means it's different from me. And it forces me in when I'm, <laughs> when I'm being a healthy person, it forces me to extend compassion mm-hmm. rather than judgment. You know, when I teach the Know Your Number workshop uh, to people who don't know their number, I, I always say, I, I'm not sure you'll leave today knowing your number. You probably will because I've been doing this a long time. I'm pretty good at it. Mm-hmm. But I guarantee you'll leave more compassionate than when mm-hmm. you came. And, boy, we're lacking that, aren't we? Right. Yeah, man. Speaking as one who gains a significant amount of my value from being right all the time, um, and realizes that that is an idol that will destroy my relationships. Um, one of the things that I'm really trying to push into during this season has been exceedingly difficult is that there are beautiful things to really learn in whatever the value is, the target is, that this other person seems to be seeking. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are toxic, and their targets are toxic, and so they're not the ones that I'm talking about. But sure. finding those folks... Yeah, in different spaces than I'm at, finding what is the beautiful thing they are attracted to that they see and elevate, that, that is, has been quite good for my heart. This moves us into the books that you're overseeing, that there's, uh, each of these books is seeing a type through that type, through those glasses. And so um, let's get started there. Um, we, we say this over and again, but the Enneagram symbolized by nine numbers in a circle. And here we pick a topic and we go around the circle. And today we're looking at our own glasses and how our type ought to see the Enneagram through that and perhaps embrace something like change or transformation. Um, and I want to start with the, the twos. 
Hey, Suzanne. Yep. You're a two. Is there wisdom for how twos should see and use the Enneagram, specifically for twos? Uh, yeah. Carefully. <laughs> I um, will be grateful forever that when Richard Rohr taught me the Enneagram, he told me uh, not to talk about it for five years. Because I'm a two and I'm relational, I could have read one book on the Enneagram and thought I knew it. Hmm. And I could have talked about it as if I knew it. And I could have made up answers to questions uh, without knowing the answer to questions. All of those things are possible for my personality type because, because twos are so relational and because they are so other-referenced. Yeah. Five years is a long time, and I read everything that was published at that point, which was not a huge body of work. I probably read, maybe over those five years, I probably read 100 things and maybe kept 45 of Mm. those. And um, pretty soon I got to a point where I knew what was right and what wasn't right, or what rang true and what didn't ring true. And then I would watch people and... Um, and, and then I went through the stage of, okay, I know somebody who I know is a three. So that means I know threes. And then I tried to apply everything about that person to other people who I thought were threes and that didn't work. Right. Um, so there's all of that. And I think twos would be prone to help you by telling you what your number is and telling you what you need to learn about that and how you can do better. Right. Right. And that's the exact wrong thing to do with the Enneagram. Uh, the Enneagram is about waiting for other people to discover for themselves who they are and how they see and then choose to share that with you. Hmm. On exactly that front, one of the benefits I imagine to this book series will be being able to see other types that are not your own that's right. through that type's glasses. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you're a two coming to numbers that are not your own, Mm-hmm. What is some wisdom for studying other types? Well, uh, you know, who knows how many times I've said this. When I call on somebody and they raise their hand and they say something about their number, and I'm, I'm aware that I know that thing. I, I already know that. Mm. And I never would have said it that way. Yeah. Mm. I will never be able to speak for another number the way those numbers speak for themselves. And the nuance that's in that is what causes attraction or a desire for separation. Hmm. Ooh, talk, talk about that. Well, either it, once that nuance comes out in a number, whether you know the Enneagram or not, then people are either attracted to the nuance or they're repelled by it. And so that's why people uh, think all sevens have come to the dinner party to be the entertainment for the night. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing from sevens is they're willing to have that be entry-level conversation, but they've got way more to say. But we don't generally want to hear that mm-hmm. from sevens. We want them to continue to entertain us in ways that are lively and, uh, you know, all of that. And so 
you can be attracted to the nuance in a seven, but people who are not on their own journey, then when a seven starts to do some work and they want to talk on a deeper level and they, they, they want to say more, then people say, what happened to you? You used to be so much fun, mm-hmm. right? So there's, it, it's very tricky. And m- most sevens are not gregarious. And people who read about sevens believe that they are. Mm-hmm. Most sevens have to be invited into conversation. They watch the room. They wait. They don't need much from you. Mm-hmm. Right? So they're not coming to get you. And so until you get that, uh, until you get that, that's what draws you to a seven, is that they don't care if you're paying attention to them or not. Mm. (laughs) Right? It's not when they're cute that you're drawn to. It's that you're drawn to the fact that they think their story was funny and they don't care if you think it was funny or not. Right. And that either draws people or pushes them away. Mm-hmm. My my best friend in the whole wide world is a seven, and uh, he is he is very. You can easily apply a lot of the stereotype to him, but also the the great thing about him is that is is the thing that's behind that constant performer that uh, his his drive to to live a life that's full that gives mm-hmm. him the stories that that he so easily tells mm-hmm. like he's not entertaining because he can tell really good stories he's entertaining because he's had a life that has given him stories to tell mm-hmm. that's right and and that that part of it that that piece behind it is so much more interesting than just being a good storyteller Yeah, you know, I can say this line. I can say, you know, Joe and Joel have always been really close. Mm -hmm. Or I can tell this story. When Joe had his heart attack, uh, they would only let one person stay in the room overnight, and of course that was me. Mm -hmm. And Joel, at 6'3", curled up in a corner of the waiting room and stayed there and slept all night. Mm -hmm. Mm. So you, you see the difference in that? Like, and so people who know aggressive numbers or who know sevens think that they don't take things like that seriously. Mm-hmm. And they think, oh, that a seven would go home, go to bed. Like if I gave multiple choice, they wouldn't put my seven child curled up on the floor in the waiting room. Hmm. They would put my eight, my nine, or my, you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's that, it's that. Yeah. And that's why I hate uh, cocktail talk around the Enneagram. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm. A, if you want to start a group of people who hate cocktail talk, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna. I would love to be a member because. Well, we're gonna have to meet in multiple locations because <laughs> yeah. once people once people get it, they just go deeper and deeper and deeper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, I I'm so glad that it's trendy right now because we gain lots of people who are gonna want to go deeper. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who'll say, you know, I can't remember what my number is. That was kind of trendy when I was in college, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go there because um, one of the things you write, and this was I thought uh, very much worth building on um, in in your intro, 
was you wrote, I hope you'll consider the difference between change and transformation. You said change is when we take on something new. Transformation occurs when something old falls away. I love this distinction. I assume that this will be a wonderful place to jump into with each of the numbers in terms of if you just get, got rid of this, that might be a huge step forward. Or if you just uh, added this, that might be a big step forward. On change for a two, if you were going to speak to other twos, what's one practice that is invigorating for the heart of a two? Silence. Why silence? I, I, I would put that with other types. Why silence for you? Well, because that's uh, the only place that we go to get to know ourselves. Right. And that's the only thing that invigorates our hearts. Now, if you want me to be invigorated, you know, have you guys ever heard me tell the story that I publicly said one day I'm going to read everything that Henry Nouwen wrote because he's a two, and I'm going to read it in the order that he wrote it uh, because I think that would be helpful for my journey. Uh-huh. And then I found out he had written 42 books, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I did what I said I was going to do, and it was good for my journey. But when I went back, I don't know, maybe five years ago to read now and again, uh, all the notes that I made in the first 10 books are for other people. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. This would be helpful to Fred Flintstone, and mm-hmm. he and Wilma could really use this, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like, And there's that not Wilma. a thing in there that I underlined that was a stretch for me or that mm. because of how I see. Yep. Right? right? But silence doesn't offer you that. When you talk about silence, is this um, getting... What, what, is, what does silence look like in practice for you? Uh, it's different than solitude. So solitude for me is a day uh, with no, you know, no connection outside of my home where I read and maybe eat a lunch that I really like and just spend time with no noise. That's solitude. Silence for me is somewhere between that and what happens when I do a contemplative sit. It's a different kind of quiet for me. Mm. And it's a, a silence has to include for a two, for a two. Silence has to include silencing all the stuff that's going on in your head. So on a day when I'm going to spend an hour in silence, I know that I will have to do a sit to enter into that hour. I'll have to do one 20 or 25 minutes in, and I probably won't make it the last 35 minutes. Mm. And it's, um, it's kind of mystical, actually. Um, sometimes I just feel better. I always feel better. Sometimes I just feel better, but sometimes I have an insight about something that's like from nothing I'm reading or thinking about. And I just keep a journal for those things and go back to them every once in a while and see what I need to learn from that. So, I, you know, I, I think alone time, for, for twos who haven't done a lot of work with spiritual practices, uh, for me, it's being alone because I have fooled myself into thinking that all of the work that I need to do, I can do in the presence of other people. Mm. Hmm. Do you get in touch with acknowledging your own needs in those spaces, or is yes. the target something else? No. That is the target? 
that's not that's not my intention, but it is often the result. Uh. My intention is just to be beyond the quiet of solitude, but not in the middle of a sit. Hmm. On the flip side, what's one practice that twos should intentionally stop? Uh, moving toward people and offering something in real time. As a, this is a place I'm going to connect you with you as my new friend? Mm-hmm. So, no, as, um, uh, uh, here's a perfect example. Our next door neighbor is quite elderly and his daughter called here this morning to call Joe and said, I can't get in touch with the caretaker. The keypad says that nobody's come or gone. And could you go over and check on my dad? And Joe said, of course, I'll take the phone with me. And he talks to her on the way. And I'm on the porch, my porch, looking at Joe Mm -hmm. next door, thinking, uh, I wonder if I know how to get in touch with Jeff and TJ if I need to cancel. Because I got to be able to do this thing, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, I, I I need to be sure that we call the daughter later today and tell her, that we checked in and her dad's fine. Mm-hmm. But I don't need to do any of that. She called Joe, not me. Right. <laughs> and she called in with right? a very specific request. Yes. And Which you're he... planning on several other things that you yes, can fulfill. Yes, yes. Yeah. And Joe handled it post-haste. Yep. And I'm supposed to be writing a book. Mm. Right? Yeah. So I've learned, though, not to just run over there and say, I want to talk to her. when you, Before you hang up, I want to talk. Mm-hmm. And getting on the phone and saying, listen, I'll just check on him mm-hmm. for the next few days so you don't have to worry. Right. See, that's, that's two stuff. And, and if other people knew that, then they would see me holding up a big sign that says, would you please love me? And if you could want me, that would be just so great. Mm-hmm. You got thoughts on those two, TJ, on change and transformation? I, I love the idea of being more intentional about cultivating silence. Like it, like solitude is great, but, but really like you can do an awful lot of things that distract you in the midst of solitude. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and so like that, that space in between like an intentional contemplative time and just being alone, like there, there is something in the middle there that, like can only create room for something else to speak. Uh, and yeah, the, <laughs> like we talk about twos storing up favors and, and this, like, like I know so many twos who like the very first lesson that they have to learn is to not say yes to everything. That's right. And, and even beyond that to not jump into spaces they're not being asked into. And one of the best things that happens when you practice solitude or silence or do a sit is you, you create for yourself a space to be in that doesn't mean you need to do anything for anybody else. Mm-hmm. And an, it, it, it's like, um, you know, Teresa of Avila talks about having an interior castle. Mm-hmm. 
And you guys know that because Joe was with the Vincentian Fathers until he was 40, he's had a spiritual director since he was 12 or 13, 13. Mm-hmm. And he, he, just, you know, he's Joe, but he has a castle and I've worked really hard and I have an efficiency apartment hmm. and that's all I'm going to have. Like, I'm not going to get to have a castle cause I started at 37, sure. but my apartment I can go to when I need to. Mm-hmm. And that's what keeps me from moving toward other people, getting involved, helping when I haven't been asked to taking on doing something that as soon as I get to my car, I'm going to resent. Yeah. Yep. Mm. Or even while you're saying it. <laughs> well, there's that. <laughs> well, and, and realistically, I, I would guess that if you did have an interior castle, you would sort of subconsciously start to invite other people into that castle because there's so many rooms and so many so much space for guests. It's probably better for you to have an efficiency Just apartment. Just a little apartment? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nope. No room for anybody but me. <laughs> nope. Nope. That's all you need. And good news for those who are twos or who love twos or who want to know more about twos, the book on twos is coming out first. Uh, the twos and threes are going to get released here in a couple of weeks. Right. Uh, do you want who's the author of the book on twos and you want to say something about him? Hunter Mobley. Um, Hunter is uh, a really interesting guy. Uh, he's from Nashville. He uh, was the executive pastor at a large church in Nashville, Christchurch, until uh, recently. He uh, was one of my apprentices and he teaches with us here in LTM. And he's an attorney, and he teaches law at Belmont in Nashville. And he's a white guy. Did I say that? I'm working really hard on trying to be a little more honest about uh, descriptive ways of talking about people respectfully. So uh, I know him well, and uh, yet I learned a lot from reading his 40 reflections. I'm... Uh, anxious to get them. Uh, there were some that I worked right then for myself when I was editing the book. That's excellent. What brings us to uh, the threes? Um, oh, I have a quote. You oh, want please. A quote? Yeah. I have if a quote some... from each one, so let me give Perfect. you a quote. Wonderful. L- little hook. I got a little hook for everybody. Hunter says, as twos, we are often visited by the existential questions of belonging and connection. And even though we connect easily with people, many of us struggle with loneliness and questions of whether the other person feels as strongly about us as we feel about them. Then he quotes Nowen, who was a two. Nowen said, I began to ask myself whether my lack of contemplative prayer, my loneliness, and my constantly changing involvement in what seemed most urgent were signs that the spirit was gradually being suppressed. The... A common place for me to get in to try and get into the heart of other types is to think through stance and then the primary yeah. that their uh, intelligence center wants. And so the earning of attention that comes out there in terms of this is just the thing and naming the thing is kind of what we said before. I mean, it's the, both the struggle and this can be an entry point into just understanding yourself and, and your soul. Um, but that's what I hear there. Yeah, and to circle back to the silence, 
until Ooh. you can be, until you can be silent with yourself, you can't know that you're okay without this. All of your affirmation has to come from outside of you if mm. you're a two. Hmm. Just a, as, a, as, the, as a final note here, do you really believe all of your affirmation needs to come from an internal place? I, I will say this. For me, of course, internal place includes the presence of God in ways that I understand yeah. who God is. Uh, the only lasting sense I have of myself comes from there. There is there's something in the Christian tradition that's one of the things that really attracts me is the answer that if you have Christ, you have everything that you possibly need. It's such a difficult place to get to in terms of my own type, my own longings, um, and finding all my satisfaction in Christ. And yet all the, obviously, there's, there's so much to life that is, you know, just icing on the cake to that. But if you have that foundation, that is where true soul health resides. Yeah, I think all the mystics of the church, the early church mystics, all had that. All mm -hmm. of them. Yeah. Bang. Well, let's go with the threes then. Uh, do you got uh, any wisdom for how threes should see and use the Enneagram? Um, I think the, the first best gift for threes from the Enneagram is that they begin to unpackage and uncover all of the image crafting that they've done all of their lives. And it's very scary. And until somebody names it for you, I, I don't think threes even know that they're image crafting. You know, if you ask a three in that part of their journey what they're doing, they'll tell you that they're just trying to give other people what they want. Mm. And that's an honest answer. It's like, I'm able to read what these people want. I know what they want from me. And I can morph into that and give it to them. So why not? And then that proves to be very successful. So why not do it over here and over here and over here? Mm -hmm. So I, I think the first thing that threes have to learn and observe from the Enneagram is that they've been image crafting since they were children. Mm -hmm. And that it's going to take a lot of work to stop doing that and to uncover what they've covered up. And without Enneagram wisdom, I, I don't know how you name that or how you would know to do that. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's a great word. You know, like I, I try to, uh, I'm a pastor's wife at a large, large church uh, that has money. And I try to dress appropriately for everything and to be appropriate at everything. So I do image crafting too, but I do it for an evening. I do it for a specific event. Mm -hmm. Threes have been image crafting all day, every day, since they were children. Mm -hmm. And I don't know anything else that teaches you that except the Enneagram. And I certainly don't know anything else that would suggest that you don't need to do that except the Enneagram. Yep. When a three comes to study uh, numbers that are not their own, what's some wisdom for them in that study? Uh, the lack of comparison. Other numbers just don't compare like ones and threes do. Hmm. You, you can't put fours in that group, and I'll tell you why when we get to fours. But 
that constantly comparing yourself to other people, comparing the different flowers in the vase to one another, comparing the houses on the street, comparing the cars that you pass, that way of seeing isn't in other people. And it's so common for threes, what they will, I think, see in reading these other folks is that that's not what their focus is. Mm. Mm. Uh, the author of the three book is Sean Palmer. Right. Um, we should we should add the quotes about here. Uh, you got a word on Sean? And, uh... Sure. Sean is a black pastor from uh, Houston. And he and I met at an event in uh, Greenwich, Connecticut, and then in New York called um, uh, Sacramental Imagination. And Joe and I were teaching there, and, and uh, we went in from Connecticut into New York one night, and they ordered a regular bus to take us, but it ended up being a party bus. So huh. the first thing is I met <laughs> Sean Palmer at the back of a party bus. Um, <laughs> and I, I'd been, you know, we'd been teaching for a couple of days and visiting churches and stuff, and I, I uh, was, a, you know, a little whipped up. And, free and told some of my best jokes and uh <laughs> then joe had to go back behind me and say please don't ever tell that joke and if you do don't <laughs> tell that suzanne told it um so that's how i met sean and then i uh taught at his church and he studied under me uh in a cohort and i really uh love his two daughters and his wife um, I don't know them well, but I know all the things that Sean has shared with me about them. And I, um, his his daughters are biracial. Um, he's in an interracial marriage, and he's a black pastor in a church that has mostly white guys. And uh, he has a lot to say, a lot to say. And a lot to say is a three, I think. So you want to hear the quote right now? Yeah. Uh, there's just no way to be successful at looking successful to everyone without creatively shading the picture. And mm. that's deceit. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Does that blow you away? See, now I've been teaching that for 25 years, but I never said it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Cause creatively I'm not shading. a three creatively shading the picture that's period. That's deceit period. Naming it. Man, it's good. Oh, it's so good. It takes your breath away. We're talking to Sean next week. You got thoughts on that, uh, TJ? I, I'm, I'm thinking back to, uh, we talked earlier about how, how difficult it is to, to please everyone in the room. And I think like this, this ties into that. Like you can't, you can't be, you, you can't gain the acclaim of everyone in the room unless you're lying to at least some of them because everyone's going to see you a little differently. And, and yeah, I think that's, that's one of the things that, that goes along with being three is that you're trying to get everyone in the room to tell you that you're great. Yeah. You know, uh, TJ, that's exactly true with, I want to make one little alteration to that because it's a way that we distinguish twos from threes. Mm. So twos will go after the person they don't have. Right. Because they literally want every single person in the room. Mm -hmm. Threes are good with 95%. Oh, sure. 
Sure. Right? Yeah. So let's just be sure we say that. Because they're, okay. you know, if they have most of the people in the room, they're fine. Yeah. Still success. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. On change, what's uh, one practice that is invigorating for the heart of a three? Um, reading Dorothy Day. Okay. Is Dorothy Day is herself a three, I assume? Yes. Dorothy Day uh, was the founder of the Catholic wor- worker movement after mm-hmm. World War II. And she uh, was a self-identified three. But, you know, people get lost in threeness. They, they think three means externals and just having the right hairdo and the right clothes and the right makeup and living in the right neighborhood and all that. And if you live in a three city like Dallas, that is a part of it. But um, Dorothy Day, uh, you know, her way of being successful every day was calling the country and its leaders back to their gospel responsibility Hmm. to soldiers and their families and other people who had been damaged and harmed and had lost a lot in World War II. Hmm. And so her focus is completely, completely different, and yet it's a three focus. And so a good way for threes to reclaim the totality of threeness is by reading Dorothy Day because it's not the cultural understanding of threeness. It's not the cocktail party understanding of threeness. Mm-hmm. And most importantly, it's not the part of threes that they're ashamed of. Mm. Yeah. So, Dorothy Day. On transformation, what's a practice that all threes should surrender or stop? Well, of course, you know, n- number one for everybody is contemplative prayer. So everybody has to do that. Now, uh, one that uh, you should, so threes, you shouldn't stop that. The one thing that I think uh, could really help threes if they would work on it is if they could stop multitasking. Mm. Threes get the gist of most conversations because they're usually multitasking. Mm -hmm. They get uh, the bottom line of most engagements uh, or most meetings because they're multitasking. And uh, too much is lost. And if they would let go of that and they got to know other people a little more deeply, regardless if they're ever going to see them again or if they see them every week, I think that'd be pretty darn good. So that's one. Thoughts on neither of those, Teach? I'm thinking about the the stopping multitasking, and a, a lot of the threes that I know, um, they're they're very good at the things that they do, but they also cheat at a lot of the other things. <laughs> and and if like thinking about instead of trying to do so many things at once, if you s- focus on the one thing, then you don't have to cheat at it. Yeah. And. And you also, that means you never have to hide the fact that you cheated. There you go. (laughs) Which also helps diminish deceit. There you go. um, There's something, it seems to me, in the heart of a three in in terms of practice where finding those places where you can really be grounded in your value for simply being you outside of the opinions of everyone else. Mm -hmm. I don't know necessarily off the top of my head what those practices look like, but... 
find those places where you recognize you have unsurpassable worth before anything you say or do or present image-wise. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, one, one practice for that is going to an event and not going to introduce yourself to the speaker and not contributing to the conversation, just going and observing and being present and going home. Mm. That, that little periods of time where you don't go with the urge that is just innate in you to impress somebody. You know, another thing you could do is whatever you go to for a week, only ask questions. Don't make statements. Yeah. Similar temptation, I imagine, to sevens, where sevens, as we were saying before, you know, oh, good, the party showed up. Jump, yep. jump, jump, jump. Yep. For the three, and so I'm married to a three, and routinely my go-to is I got to recruit Kelly to do this right. very important thing for, for the rest of us. And right. I have not thought about the fact that that may not be the healthiest invitation. Right. Right. Woo. Right. Feels good though. To be the only person who could get this and do it right. That feels real good. She's a superstar. And, and yet. Well, and she's a superstar for whom a good percentage of the time it costs her something to be Mm -hmm. a superstar. And similar to twos has a very, very difficult time saying no. Yep. Because that looks like failure. Yep. Well, how should fours see and use the Enneagram? You know, fours are the most complex number on the Enneagram. And um, this is dualistic. And I realize the duality of what I'm about to say. But they can literally either use the Enneagram for change and to set the table for transformation, or they can use it as an excuse for behavior that's not serving them well. Hmm. I, I tip my hat to fours who do serious Enneagram work, who have a spiritual director, who work with different practices, because... Um, It's so interesting that a number that is so complex would be the number for whom relationships are the most important. Relationships are more important to fours than they are to twos. And that's saying something. And everything is about relationships. And yet, they really struggle in relationships because ordinary feelings, they don't like those. You know, they if they're sad, they want to be sadder. And if they're happy, they want to be happier. And envy is a problem, but we have to talk about the difference in envy and jealousy. And jealousy is wanting something somebody else has, and that's not the force problem. The force problem is envy, and envy is wanting comfortable, wanting to be comfortable in the world like other people are, wanting to seem to go through life with ease like other people do. You know, they don't want your stuff. They want your way of being. Hmm. And I, I think a four can't not want your way of being until they learn to be content inside themselves. So um, I think fours are going to have to find ways to, to feed themselves, to make their hearts sing, that have a shelf life. You know, once a force heart is singing, they want it to sing forever. Mm. 
Fours are not content with things that have a shelf life. They want to bring it all and bring it all with them and keep bringing all of it with them in order to feel full. And of course it doesn't work, right? right. And for a four to be content, they will have to be content with the flow of all things. Everything flows. Hmm. That's a good word for all the idealists there in terms of yeah. sevens and ones as well for their own yeah. addictions or yes. their own basic desires. And, and those numbers, addiction's a good word because they all want to get the same thing from the same thing over and over. Yeah. yeah right? Totally so, well. yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. When fours are studying numbers that are not their own, mm-hmm. um, what is the wisdom there? Uh, pain and other numbers. So being able to see the mm-hmm. pain that that mm-hmm. is different from their own pain or that... Uh... Just that it's there. That other numbers really struggle. Mm-hmm. And other numbers really wish life was different sometimes. And other numbers uh, really hurt when other people don't get them. Is that a me too kind of move for the four? Yes, exactly. That the four needs to know that others yeah. also have mm-hmm. pain in those spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting because you don't... I, I'm kind of thinking that this series may be the go-to for fours for that Hmm. because you don't get it in a conversation with somebody else right you don't get it unless the other numbers being self-reflective you don't get it Mm -hmm. and you certainly don't get it from the textbooks no no yeah and the four is going to only know the other numbers when they can see the dark sides would that be well well you know, fours are pretty intrigued by the dark sides. <laughs> but but uh, I, I think fours are only going to know other numbers when they see the struggle hmm. or when they see in writing, I, I was on the outside looking in. I felt like I was at a window. Mm. I, mm-hmm. You know, then, then they go, oh, my gosh, I feel that way too. Yeah, mm-hmm. there it is. I imagine that that takes the eyes off the four on themselves. Right. And what is that, allowing a, a, a pathway to the relationships that you were saying that fours actually genuinely covet? Yes. And, and I, I think fours, once they read these other numbers, will believe that other numbers can see them. Sure. Yep. Which, is, of course, is the heart's message for a four. Sure. That they that they would be seen and loved, as they are. The um, do you have a? I don't know the uh, author for the four book. Oh, the author is Christine Yi Su, and she's Korean. And by the way, she's adorable. <laughs> Wonderful. Like I, I, she, you just want to know her. You you kind of want to jump through the screen, <laughs> um, and um. She's done a lot of work for a young woman. Um, her foreness is not quite as uh, entitled. Hmm. That's uh, a good word. Which I actually think is because she's Korean. Mm. You know, one of the things that we're just beginning to be on the edge of, and I, you know, I don't know if I'm going to live long enough. I hope I do. I figure 20 more years and I can do this work that I'm fixing to talk to you about. <laughs> um, but I, I know because I've taught in Europe uh, to people from 21 different countries, 
uh, at an event who spoke 17 different languages. English was a second language for all of them. And I taught a know your number thing, and then I taught with Richard Rohr for a couple of days. And everybody got their number. So I know that it works. With my American white way of teaching it, I know it works. Mm -hmm. But how people live out their numbers is different in different cultural contexts. And I want to get a chance to know that before I'm finished. And so that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about this series, too, because mm-hmm. you, you get some of that. And I think uh, Christine is just not quite so entitled, hmm. um, which is not putting down other fours. I'm just saying I, I think that's part of being Korean. Sure. Yeah. That's one of those places, yeah, you, you put a certain person with a certain motive in a certain situation and it begins to express itself in yeah. that context. I think that that we've talked about female eights in the past. I think female eights are going to be very important in our culture moving forward. Um, yeah. I, um, I, I, there, uh, recently uh, quite a few seem to be, I'm typing people I don't know, but are, are being elevated into places where we want you to speak because you have the thing that needs to be said. And I imagine that can, yeah, I, I love I love that idea of every culture is different and therefore how the how your type is expressed there is going to be a place to stay. I agree with everything you just said. And I think we have to be careful that we don't replace white guys with female aides. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Right? That's a That could happen. And... Um, <laughs> so much to say on that. I'm not going to say any of it. All right. We got a lot of work to do. We got a lot of work to do, but I'm just saying white guys who are uh, aware of yeah. what's happening, mm-hmm. old and young, yeah, are trying to back up a little bit. <laughs> and it's going to be very interesting to see who fills the space. Right. And one of the things that I teach about AIDS is if there's a male and female, if there's a leadership gap, yeah. then they fill it. Right. I'm not sure we're going to gain anything if we fill all of the white guy space with other aggressive numbers, male or female. Right. That's it, all I got. Is it the case that, so I'm thinking about cultural change. It seems to me, I'm, I'm thinking of somebody like Frederick Douglass, who's a black man who yep. I imagine is an eight in, you know, who is doing phenomenal work in the 1860s has the passion for justice and the aggressive posture to step into that space to make space for everybody else. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would, I don't trust our culture to make space for no. the other numbers unless they're doing art. If, if, if they're doing beautiful things that are recognized and you cannot not see this movie, you cannot not see this or listen to this album. Right. I could see that being the case, but anyway, that was a half-baked thought. Well, here's, here's the other half, maybe, of that cake. I think y- y'all have heard me enough that you know that my language is set the table. W- what are we going to set the table for? And if we're going to invite other people to the table, what are we s- setting the table for? Mm. Is it for dinner? Is it for a month? Is it for the future? Is it, right? Yeah. 
And I think what is our responsibility at this moment in time as white people in our culture and in our time, I think our responsibility is to set the table for other cultures to come to the table and bring what they have, just like we would set the table for other Enneagram numbers to come to the table and bring what they have. That's a good Mm -hmm. word. Right? And then we've got something. So I'm going to tell you a story. I don't think I've ever told this publicly. When I was 19, 18 years old, I came to SMU as a freshman from mm-hmm. Floyd A to Texas. It was 1969, January. Come on. My liberal studies class was going to McFarland Auditorium to hear Stokely Carmichael speak. Mm-hmm. Now, I came out of Floyd Ada. So uh, uh, the civil rights movement was n- not happening much. In Floyd Ada. Floyd Ada was like five or ten years behind the rest of the country and, you know, great with that. Mm-hmm. It's like we're not caught up in all that muckety-muck. Things here are great. Sure. And um, I happened to have uh, filled out a form that said I was willing to have a black roommate, and I was the first person to do that. They and had when a I, form for that. Yeah, you had, to, you had to say you were willing, and I was more than willing because of how I grew up, but... So my roommate, uh, the first, I don't know how long now, I can't remember accurately, was at a sit-in in the president's office. Hmm. Like, I didn't even meet her. Yeah. Then I go to hear Stokely Carmichael, and then he talks. And I don't know, little Miss Floyd Ada here, I didn't know that I, I couldn't just raise my hand and say what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> You two can just imagine it, can't you? And so I I did raise my hand, and I said something to the effect of, you seem so angry. Mm. Are are we supposed to just flip the tables? Like, now you're going to be where white people have been, and white people are supposed to be where you've been? Mm. And he kind of went with that. And I knew right then that I was learning something I should never forget. Yeah. And that is that switching sides doesn't change the game. Right. And so that's why I I so believe in the metaphor of setting the table. What are we setting the table for? So we're in a crossroad. We're at a crossroads right now. Mm -hmm. And I haven't felt one like this since the 60s. Yeah. And my question every day is, okay, well, what are we going to set the table for? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And generally, people don't look ahead far enough to have an answer to that question. Right. So that's that's the end of that speech. We should keep moving right, right away. Again, yeah. again, a fantastic um, in practice. This is what the book series is doing: is elevating voices yep. of people of color and uh, women authors, and yep. that have not had a whole lot of microphone time. That's right. And so Cindy Bunch and IVP set the table yep. to end up with this series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the the it's not just the content, it's the means or the Absolutely. The, me- the medium is the message That's here. Right. It, and it, right. and it matters. Um excellent. Uh did you have a quote from the uh, Oh, I sure do. Uh did I say what they should stop doing? Not yet, but we'll get there. Oh, good, because I for sure want to. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Christine says this. 
I started experiencing depressive symptoms as a young college student. As a child of Asian immigrants, I had no framework or understanding in dealing with mental health issues. I would struggle through these valleys alone, flexing my three wing to try to push through them until I felt normal. I confronted these episodes by taking on more responsibilities in an effort to fix myself. I didn't think to reach out to anyone or try to share what I was going through. It was strange to acknowledge to myself that even though I shared so many intimate things about myself to my dearest, closest friends, the fog was off limits. I wanted help, but my culture told me that depression was not an illness. It was a byproduct of not working hard enough. I had seen firsthand my parents endure and survive emotional trauma time and time again. I was to push through and push harder for survival. That is exquisitely written. That's, Isn't that fantastic? Holy, that's a gold. Anyway, there's content there, which TJ will, will comment on. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, um, I'm struck by, like, I, learning this myself, I'm, I'm struck by, it, it's, especially knowing so many fours, like, like, our community is sort of a four magnet. Um, we draw fours in and the fours that I know and sort of the, the sort of stereotype of fours is that it's so easy to spend time in that darker space and for that to be normal and for that to also be easy to share from. And, and here, uh, this is something I never would have thought of someone who comes from a completely different cultural experience who, does not share the worst parts. Right. Uh, she she said she's so quick and it's so easy to share all of the most intimate parts of herself except for this. Yeah. The mm. fog was off limits. And that's that's something I would never think about for other fours in my life without hearing a four say that. Yeah. So here's what I would say. Uh, you know, I raised a four. Mm. Uh, who's gay and grew up in Texas mm -hmm. with parents in ministry. Mm -hmm. So that's tricky. Sure. And I knew about him for a very, very, uh, since he was a little boy, I have known that what he shares is the tip of the iceberg. Mm. And so what, what happens is this, and this is a little bit complex, but I'll try to say it very succinctly. Fours, so desperately want to be seen, heard, and known. Mm. And then maybe even wanted, <laughs> right? Mm. But known is big. They so seldom experience it when they're young because people don't have the patience for that and they don't expect it, right? And so if somebody bites, if somebody leans into a four, to get to know them, then the four wants to tell you, they want you to know everything. Mm -hmm. And once they fire hose you with that, people go away. Right. It's too much and it's too deep and too personal. And so people go away. Mm -hmm. So with what happens here with Christine, you can see that there's a, a very tricky side to the fact that culturally she can't, uh, the, the fog is off limits. Mm -hmm. So that's there. But the other thing that's here is that 
fog that's not at 30,000 feet, but that's at 10,000 feet, is also off limits for other numbers. Hmm. And the common thread becomes what's off limits. Yeah. When you're doing something like these reflections. Here's what you're sharing with me. And, oh, you're going to tell me something that you don't share with anybody else. And I'm telling you after that, you hold the book a little differently. Mm. Right? You, you, you think, oh, my, that somebody would share this with me. So when we talk about cultural difference, I want to talk about fours. I want to talk about cultural difference. And then I want to come back and talk about fours again. Mm. Because different cultures' expression of fourness will teach us nuance about fourness that we're not learning. Right. Mm. Oh, that made me really tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, are there any practices that are, are invigorating for the heart of a four? Yes. Uh, affirmations. To and others? the four should write, no, their own. Okay. Affirmations, and that the four should write their own. Oh, like uh, affirming themselves? Yes, yes, yes. That they're going to use, they should do it with the, the best creativity they have. And they should create their own book of affirmations where they're affirming themselves. Hmm. And they should live in that journal. Uh, make it big enough to live in it for 10 years. Then they don't have the out. See, when they write affirmations for themselves... Then they don't have the out of, well, if they knew me, they wouldn't think that. Sure. If they knew my story, they wouldn't be able to affirm that in me, right? Mm. So that's a process, and that's a big thing to do. And the other thing to do is um, self-examine. This is two-sided. Self-examine is something they should do, and then I want to talk about how they should deal with self-examine. So let's say you have a, uh, a watch that beeps. So you're going you're gonna to set your watch to beep uh, at 11 o'clock and 4 o'clock and 8 o'clock at night. And then here's what you do. Every time it beeps, you look back over the time that just went by. And you see how many times you were uh, too much hmm. or not enough. You know, fours operate between the space of either I'm too much or I'm not enough. And after you've named that, you don't judge it. You just let it go. Mm. And then not judging it is where you learn to accept it, which decreases your feeling of not being enough or of being too much. Hmm. So it beeps for a four. Four times this morning, I know I was too much. People backed up. One person walked away. I'm, I was too much. Now, what a four would do then the rest of the day is beat themselves up for being too much. This morning, I'm always too much. That person's never going to talk to me again. And what I'm suggesting is that they stop all of that. But you got to give fours a, a benchmark to start at if they're going to stop something. Otherwise, it gets as fluid as their way of seeing, or they beat themselves up. Is that, is that, then the, is that the targeting? The virtue for fours is equanimity. Is that... That's the goal there, yeah. It's some yeah. sort. It's an emotional balance uh, uh, that you have to have in yourself, yeah, before you can have it in relationship to other people. And mm. fours never have it. Mm. There it is. Mm. They don't have it, so they're trying to have a thing with other people that is unfamiliar to them because they don't have it in themselves. Uh, it also seems like there's 
without having said it, it seems like that this is also about creating boundaries yep. about. So, so fours living in the extremes, like this is, this is very intentionally saying right. you're going to mark this time and you're going to examine this specific amount of time. And then you're going to let that go. And That's the right. next time you're going to focus on a different specific time. So that you That's don't, easy. so that they don't sort of, spend all of their time ruminating and allowing to it to grow into bigger than than just that moment perfectly said perfect well uh that's the on the positive on the stop doing side what what are some practices that force could intentionally stop for health here here it is and this is language i use about nines usually um, so I'm going to keep using it about nines too, but nines, uh, I'm going to make the distinction. Nines erase themselves, <laughs> but they erase themselves out of a scene without ever really being a part of it. You know, they just erase themselves. Fours have to stop negating themselves, but because I, I'm concerned that they won't relate well to negating, I'm saying they have to stop erasing themselves when things don't work out as planned. Mm. You know, fours spend time practicing the conversation they're going to have with you. They spend time pretending, thinking through what it's going to be like to be with you for lunch. And then if it isn't that, they almost always think it's their fault. And they just erase themselves again. It's just a big swath of, I don't count, other people don't get me, they're never going to. It's an erasing of things. And it, you have to want less from the lunch in order to get anything from most lunches. Hmm. Right? So stop erasing yourself out of a picture where you don't feel comfortable because you're valuable and you're there. And stop having expectations that you cannot possibly meet hmm. if it involves other people. Again, the idealism at play there. Yeah. It's like this lunch, I'm going to share just this one story because I always share too many stories. So I'm going to share just this one story. And then they share the one story and the other person doesn't pick up on how deep and important it is to them. And then they, they wipe themselves out again. Can't even do it with one story. And I'm saying put yourself back there and ask what number the other person was yeah. and figure out why they didn't connect to your story and it's still your story and it's still valuable. Or it may be mm -hmm. the case that the person entirely heard your story, connected right. to your story, and simply cannot fill the yep. bucket you're asking to be filled there. That's right. Yeah. right. It's again on the finding all of your sufficiency yep. in yep. everlasting sources. It's a yep. step for all of us. Can't do it. Um, all right. Well, that brings us to a concluding spot. Um, we have hit the twos, threes, and fours. This is the heart triad. Any big ideas, Suzanne, on the heart triad and, and growth? You know, I've been trying to think a lot about uh, stances and triads and which one I think is having the hardest time during a pandemic and how it affects them and, you know, all that stuff. And um, I, I think the value of this time for this triad is to pay more attention to the people they love the most. Hmm. You know, uh, 
to be more present to what is, to need less. And um, I've learned very valuable lessons from, uh, we've, we've not been 100% quarantined, but uh, we've done pretty good. And I think it has changed how I will be when we're not quarantined. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, twos, uh, threes, and fours kind of um, gather relationships. Mm-hmm. You, in quotes, you know, I, I, they gather acquaintances for sure. They call them relationships. Mm-hmm. And it's like you can't get enough of them. And I was already learning that because I, I know too many people now from too many places from the work I've done in the last few years. And I, I know that, you know, I, it's too much. It was very, it was a lot for me. So I had to do a lot of work on my tunis to be able to accommodate that. Hmm. But I, I just think uh, twos, threes, and fours can find their way into non-pandemic restrictions with an awareness of how much a relationship deserves Mm. and how thin can you spread yourself and meet that. Yeah. And if you pull the relationships that really matter to you and you give them the attention they deserve, then you can't keep collecting people. Right. Yeah. That's, that's what I got. It's very personal, but it's also very heart triad, I think. Suzanne, it's always a pleasure to talk with you and, and, and hear your reflections. And we're so uh, grateful for your time and really look forward to talking to you again about some of the other triads at the beginning of the year. We're going to be talking to Sean and Hunter here shortly, and hopefully we'll get Christine on as well. And uh, may all good things be yours. Right back at you. Um, you guys get stuff out of me I didn't know was there. I always... I always feel taller after I've talked to you guys for a couple of hours. We'll take that. That's I okay. Yeah. You should. Um, well, much love to your family. Much uh, Give Joel a hug for us and Joe a hug for us. And, and uh, yeah, we're cheering for, for all your work. And, uh, yeah. and uh, really, li- when you need proofreaders for anything, say a, a book that <laughs> might come out in... <laughs> I know some guys. Do you know some guys, TJ? I know, I know some, some guys. guys. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know some guys. TJ, you know some guys? I know some guys. Yeah. Blurbs. Yeah. If you need blurbs from people who are really famous. Okay. I know who to call. Much love to you. Yeah, y'all too. I've been Thanks so much. Thank you. TJ, you got anything else on Heart Triad? I've been waiting for the fire. Uh, I'm not sure that I can say anything better than Suzanne I've nope. been caught without the courage to get well, by. Well, hey, it would mean the world to us if you pause, take two seconds, rise, and breathe, and give us some stars on your podcasting platform of choice. You can always find all of our stuff at aroundthecircle.org. But the best thing you can do is share this episode with someone that you love. Um, our music is by The Collection out of Greensboro. And if you dig our pop culture deep dives, we're going to continue talking about movie villains in the low side of security here soon. Um, but you can help us select upcoming series if you visit us on our Patreon page. So, uh, this is TJ Wilson. He's officially awesome. I'm Jeff Cook, and who you aren't isn't interesting. Be who you are, and you will set the world on fire.
come burning with 